So for me, thriving in complexity means that I make music, not noise. Is that notion of that I jump into the music making thing with an intention that music will be made, but maybe not music that I can anticipate in the future or uh, what it might be. However, there's a belief that because we are together, something musical will be made and we may recognize something melodic about it rather than it just being a bunch of noise. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Helen Palmer. Helen Palmer helps people learn so something different is possible. She has a deep appreciation for the complexities individuals and teams tangle with and holds spaces for people to try on new ideas, behaviors, and protocols so that they might thrive through change. She founded the business Questo in 2016 and works with teams to help reveal what they know and want to know to get their groove and use it powerfully. She also co-organized the premier Kinevan meetup in Australia, facilitating conversations with people curious about how the Kinevan framework, methods, and ideas can help navigate human complexity. There's an open invitation to join her and others in the monthly gatherings. When not working, she indulges in a bit of gardening, records the family history, including her Maori heritage that goes back 21 generations, dabbles with the Japanese craft of paper folding, otherwise known as origami, and loses herself in the cultural scapes in sci-fiction and has been known to compose a poem or three, just like three generations of her ancestors. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope it opens up new possibilities for you. Helen, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast today. I'm wondering if you'd be happy to share with listeners something that a lot of people may not know about you. Mm, I think many people would probably not know and maybe would be surprised given the nature of complexity kind of conversations. I'm the family historian for multiple lines of the family. So there's my line from my paternal side, my maternal side, my husband's maternal, paternal side, my siblings, maternal, paternal side. So I have a database in which I collect information and Part of that comes from a discovery at some point that I also have Māori ancestry. I'm originally from New Zealand and I can trace my Māori ancestry through something called a whakapapa, which for those listening, that isn't a rude word. (laughs) It's a Māori word (laughs) that means genealogy. And I can trace back 21 generations to a fella named Paikia. And Paikia was a, according to Māori migration mythology slash stories, was a person who led one of the eight immigration canoes in the original Māori Polynesian migration to New Zealand, probably about circa 600 AD. So consequently, I collect facts, I collect photographs, I collect stories of the more recent generation, which meant that last year when my grandnephew was born, I was able to present him at birth with a family tree that printed out on 24 
eight A4 pages and then had to be kind of glued together. Wow. That's, it's so lovely to connect back and understand where you come from and that real, gives you that real sense of identity, doesn't it? Yeah. And surprising too, sometimes how we can kind of make patterns. So my surname is Palmer and I was going through my brother's wife's family line and back in about the 1600s in England, she had a Palmer. And you kind of think, oh, is that some kind of coincidence or something? And you think we as human pattern-making creatures try to find meaning. And I think that's just coincidence. I mean, 400 years ago, there was another person with the same surname in the family. <laughs> well, back in the mid-90s, you're in your 20s and in Australia, it's a very much a thing to go and do the year overseas. And I was working for a family right. as a mother's help. And they had a house on Guernsey. So I'd been working with them in Scotland and then went with them to Guernsey in the Channel Islands. And I needed to go to a shop to buy a new case for my video camera. And the man who served me saw my credit card and he said, oh, you must be related to Martin who just sold the shop. <laughs> and so he rings up Martin on the phone and he find this distant relation of mine in Guernsey who was the most amazing person. And he had this 18th century manor house with a 13th century watermill on the end. Oh, how cool. Which I saw recently they've just restored and got working again. And when he sold the shop, he built a pipe organ down one complete side of his house because he loved playing the pipe organ. And he took me all around the island and told me all about my family history. It was wonderful. Oh, wonderful. So it's serendipity as well. <laughs> and sometimes too, we find those moments where you think, oh, there's nobody at my generation that's maybe musical or artistic, but gosh, there seems to be somebody somewhere else, which kind of has that interesting thing about now, how much of that is nature and nurture and DNA, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. <laughs> so Helen, people often talk about the importance of looking to the future and not dwelling on the past. However, I'm curious about your thoughts on how we can embrace our past in ways that serve us into the future. That's a really interesting conundrum slash question because we live in the present. We don't live in the past, our, our current everyday reality. However, who we are in the present, our identity is formed by the past, by our experiences by the patterns that we've created, by the beliefs that we've acquired and the stories that we have inhabited. And so it gives us a kind of stability and to the conundrum of dealing with complexity, that's going to have plenty of chaos <laughs> involved in it. So I think yes. in terms of this conversation around complexity, the fact that we can find a portion of stability in our identity gives us something to work from. But there's a creative tension in that because some of having to deal with complexity is you have to give up what you know and give up what you believe and find what patterns won't be useful because the situations we might be dealing with are novel. So I think there can be quite that conundrum between knowing some stuff while being open to that gives me something to work with. Now, can I let that go? Yes. And there's a great quote. And I can't, I'm not going to quote it particularly well. And it's something I came across when I was 12. And it's been so influential in my thinking, which is now 40 years ago, for those who may be doing the calculation from an age point of view. And it was something about never be hesitant to give up what you 
are for what you could become. Yes. And and I always love that kind of notion that there's a sense that, that we are becoming. However, we started with something. There was some raw material that came to us from our own past, from the past of our family. And part of my family historian interest has partly been an interest of so those experiences that I had that were shaped by my parents, yes. what experiences shaped them? And therefore, that helps me make sense. And I know we're possibly going to talk a little bit about the Kinevin framework, which is a sense-making framework. So for me, there's a strong sense-making quality of what the past might give me as some insight that might help me understand where I stand right now in my present while also keeping me open to new possibilities for a future without thinking I need to be tied to that past. Helen, that's so true. And I'm really one of, are you familiar with the work of Jennifer Garvey Berger and the book yes. that she did around complexity mind traps, that fifth mind trap around ego? Yes. So you are who you are because of the experiences that have shaped you. Mm. However, it's, I know that she agrees with you totally that we have to be prepared to be aware of what we need to let go of so we can become who we need to be next. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think sometimes people are like, you know, it's almost like don't worry about self. It's all about the group and whatever. And I think there's always this interesting tension, conundrum, paradox to many of the things that we hear as advice. It's like, yes, that and that. So it's like, yes, there's something about the individual and the group. And how does that kind of hang together? There's something about my identity being valid and having an ego. However, what, how much ego and in what cases do I need to let that go? And for me, there's often a, a utility kind of driving, like what will serve me now? What will serve the group that I'm here to serve? And that's what's important, not some kind of high principles. Like, this is who I am. And and I need to stand strong in this truth. It's like, well, this is who I am in this moment. Yes. Based on this context, based on my choices. And we have a very malleable sense of self. I, However, I think sometimes it's about finding, well, is there a core part that feels consistent across our entire life? And I think many people are often looking for that in a label. Like, I am a doctor or I am a something. And one of the things that I've landed on for myself, and if people visit my LinkedIn profile, it's I don't have a title per se. And if people ask me, what do you do? It's a kind of identity thread that I can track back to very early ages, to my current reality, to the potential of my future. And the line is, I help people learn yeah. so something different is possible. And for me, there's a kind of, I can hold to that, yet there's a lot of room in that abstraction for a lot of interpretation and meaning making. Mm. And it's about not thinking in absolutes and being open. Yes. It's not about just watching it for what's emerging around you. It's understanding what's going on within you at the same time. Indeed. So you have a Henry Ford quote on your Questo website and it says, Yes. Coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. In your view, how important is learning together if you want a team to successfully work together? Absolutely vital. However, <laughs> <laughs> we probably need to be a little bit exploratory about what is the scope here of learning. Because I think most people, when they hear learning, think, oh, we're going to learn skills like how to be emotionally intelligent or how to write a better email. 
And so, yeah, there is a kind of like things that add to our toolbox of things that we can do and use. There's another kind of learning and maybe it's considered more like sharing knowledge. So as a team, whoever the, maybe the six people who have come together now, there's kind of a learning of what is the we of those six people. And some of that learning is, okay, well, you've got six individuals who represent an I. And for me, when I lead a team or I host a space with a team, there's kind of a joy to see, right, we have these six individuals, what specialness or uniqueness will come of the we of those six people coming together. So there's a kind of learning that I liken to almost like calibration. We're learning what is it to be together as us six and how do we constantly be aware of the situation around us and make small adjustments, discover what's possible. And it's not so much a let's acquire a bunch of things to put in our toolkit. It's these micro kind of learning moments where like, oh, oh, I learned that you like that. Or, oh, that's interesting. You see the world in that way. Or when we both talked about that, we now learned or discovered an insight that neither of us had thought beforehand. So it's not like, oh, it was just in our heads and I'm going to bring it to the surface and give it to you, Suzanne. It's like, no, neither of us knew that, mm -hmm. but we learnt, discovered, explored, emerged that insight together. So for me, there's a, it's very much a sense of this kind of calibration of that we're finding what it is to be together and find a flow. And some of this learnings about that raising to your level of awareness of who are you and what's going on. And there's this wonderful little model that I came across many years ago and for the life of me, I can't find the source of it, so I'm not crediting it to myself. And it was this notion that if you're going to collaborate and work together as a team, there's five conversations that you need to have. And you, they need to go in sequence, but they can go and cycle back. Mm. Conversation one is, who am I? Conversation two is, who are you? Mm -hmm. Conversation three is, who are we? Conversation four is, how will we work together? And conversation five is what is our mission, task, or what is the work? Most teams go straight to conversation five, bypassing all the other conversations beforehand. So for me, this working together as a success is that we calibrated through having these four conversations before we got to conversation five. Mm. So it's about curiosity, about yourself, each other. Absolutely. And then it's that conscious observation and reflection on what's mm. you're seeing other people do what you're observing and how things are playing out and being prepared to think about how might we do things differently absolutely and it's a curiosity without purpose and it's not about going and doing a workshop indeed indeed and I think a lot of times people think oh if I'm going to be curious what's the outcome Give me some kind of guarantee that my curiosity is going to arrive at something or prove to me that if I take these steps, my curiosity, and they kind of think of curiosity just as a process. And I invite people when I'm in spaces to just be curious, just because, with no mm. expectation of what will actually emerge. Because if we have those kind of expectations of a goal or a destination, we can then turn our filters in such a way that we'll only see certain things, which really is the antithesis of curiosity. Yes. And if you adopt a mindset where you're always open to learning because those learnings can present new possibilities, mm. it's really being open to having growing through layers over time. Yeah. 
So it's not like I'm going to go in and this is the specific outcome that's going to result. It's just that this is just me continuing to develop and grow as a person or us as a team. And there is no end point. Yeah. And I think learning, as I was indicating, is a kind of a slightly problematic word of what we understand learning. There's some great work in a book by Gary Klein called Seeing What Others Don't See. And I think teams and their emergent nature and the work that we have, there's often the sense of like, well, for learning to happen, the knowledge needed to previously exist. And then somebody's going to pass it over. But there is knowledge that doesn't yet exist, or it may exist in sort of parts within the team. However, how does it come together in some kind of coherent, useful whole? And so he talks in his book about seeing what others don't see, about generating insights. And so I think sometimes the learning is, oh, I just learned slash perceived slash discerned something that could be useful as a team. And so I invite people to consider learning in a very, very broad notion. And sometimes I'll use that language change of what insights might we have discerned giving permission for it may have come from intuition, it may have come from the system of us just being together and being curious and and it would never have come except for the six group of people in this moment with this conversational challenge that we're having. It's not just something sitting on a shelf that somebody could just pick up and like, oh, let's put that in a training program and go to a workshop and learn that. Mm. I think that's also why coaching is so valuable for people as well and mentoring, Mm. because if you're not getting Mm. those insights from within your current team, there's value in having someone from outside supporting you and thinking about what's happening, how are things playing out and how can I influence a shift in the right sort of direction here. Mm. Mm. One of the things Gary Klein says in his books is five different C's and I'm not going to remember them all on this podcast, but maybe we can put something in show notes of how insights might be discerned. And one of them is actually around connections. Now, we will only make connections of the things that we already know. So going into a coaching situation allows the possibility of somebody else might put another dot or a data point or something in the mix, which enables you to now make a connection to it. So you're doing the work to make the connection to that connection. Yes. However, without that presence of some kind of catalyst or stimulus, you wouldn't have had the thing to connect to. Yes. Yes. Yep. So Helen, you specialize in holding spaces for people to try on new ideas, behaviors, and protocols so that they can thrive through change. Do you have any tips or techniques that our listeners could try at home or with their team? Sure. The first one that is really kind of basic and often gets overlooked is about appreciating the factors that make us human. And when I ask, for example, like we have biology as a consideration and I ask people, what do you think biology means? And they'll come up with some really high levels. Oh, well, you know, nature versus nurture or gender or sex. I'm like, no, more basic, more basic. And they kind of struggle like, well, what does she mean by basic? I'm talking about the fact that as a physical body, I need oxygen. (laughs) I need water. I need food. So sometimes when I'm hold, and that's just simply for my brain to work. So if I'm holding a space in which I want people to be exploring and thinking and maybe challenging their ideas, if their brain is not working at a fundamental level because it's dehydrated or it's sleep deprived or it's just not getting enough oxygenation for the blood flow, there's a basic thing that you can take care of that often gets overlooked. 
And sometimes that then means my choice of the space that I will hold in terms of like, is there even like natural light coming in here? Is there air being distributed in here? Or even in the scheduling of things, what time of day am I doing it? Or or a consideration. So yeah, at a very basic level, consider we are a biological being and what might we need to be in the best condition for doing that. Another tip is being present. Be here and nowhere else. Now, some people go, oh, yeah, yeah, but Helen, I turned off my device and my notifications. It's like, yes, but while you were sitting there, you were thinking about what were you cooking for dinner tonight or that argument that you had with the kids getting them off to school. Mm. So it's like, find a way to be absolutely present here and nowhere else. And in a society, and I even find this for myself, where we've got so used to kind of, oh, well, while I'm watching TV, I'll work on this thing on my laptop or I'll check my social media. And it's almost like we're driven to have multiple things going on. So this notion of being present and just having a singular thing going on can be really frightening to people. And if not necessarily they're aware of the frightening, it's darn uncomfortable. And so find what it is to practice being present. And you might just even do it for five minutes at a time. Now, some people might go, oh, Helen, are you talking about meditation? Meditation's your jam and it works for you? Fine. For me, I practice that being present in my garden. <laughs> and it's like seaweed, pull weed, <laughs> seaweed, pull weed. And there's a kind of a being present in the moment of not thinking, yes, now, if I'm, what am I going to plant here? And, and what's going on in the watering? It's like, no, just be here. Seaweed, pull weed, <laughs> tidy. So that would be my second tip. So, Helen, just before we go on to the third tip, I just wanted to ask, so you've given the tip that we want, you know, it's useful for people to be present. What's the benefit of that when mm. we're working in complexity? The fact that the past might not be relevant to us because with things in complexity, we're often in novel situations and we need to be able to see and hear what's going on in the current reality without letting go of the past in terms of drawing from it. Also, too, without trying to anticipate and believe, oh, that things will be predictable. Things will follow a certain pattern. So let me anticipate what that future is and the steps that I need to take, where you've already kind of started to live in the future when, in fact, it's like, no, no, let me be present. And one of the things that's in the complexity space from David Snowden and Kinevan Framework Thinking, which I know we might move to talking to soon, mm. is around the notion of looking for the adjacent possible and so you kind of need to be present, like, well, where are we now and what might be just adjacent rather than a lot of management advice is kind of like, look to the future, define a future, and then plan the steps. Well, we have no control over the inf- future. We, we can maybe influence it, however we influence it from the present. So just even knowing how to be present in the present. Mm. So to me, that comes across as a very fundamental state of being if you want to thrive in complexity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And with that comes my third tip is that sometimes when we maybe are the facilitator or the host of a space, we try to put too much control on the situation as if we are anticipating a particular outcome and therefore we have to choose the right steps to make it that outcome happen. So being open to emergence and just letting things go and giving up control. And sometimes that means that there's a great principle in applied improv called relax your clever, where it's like, I might know stuff and I'm a great problem solver. I'm going to put this into the situation. It's like, no, hold that back. Just hold it. 
Just see what we'll see and let the kind of emergent nature go. And if you're a person who's used to being the maybe the center point of the room, and I'm trying to avoid the language here at the front of the room, one of my guiding principles is to be the guide from the side, not the sage from the stage. And that's a key kind of element about, you use the word host, that I'm hosting a space. Now, of course, people will look and go, Helen was the person who we're all kind of here for. She was the person who started talking first. Oh, she must be the leader. She's going to tell us what to do and how to be in this space. And so just getting people to kind of shift. I will do things where I maybe are not standing at the front of the room, which perplexes people because it's like, no, 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 no. This is how this game's played. You're in charge here. You're at the front of the room, maybe behind some lectern in front of the slide. And so that's how it's going to go. So when I move to the back of the room or I'm moving through the room, people can like, where is she? Where do we look? What's going on here? I'm, I'm disrupting the patterns about how they think the dynamics of who's in charge here and who gets to say what's going on in the space. Really wonderful tips there that I think people can take away, yeah. Helen, and just play around with and see what happens from applying them. Well, one that I'll, I'll add to that that might really kind of ground that for some people is like when I am with a group, we're often given advice if we're in some kind of communicator presenter role that we should start off saying, right, my name is Helen Palmer. This is my label and title. These are all the places I've worked. These are all the things I've done. It was notionally to establish trust. I think, well, what I've established is power. <laughs> and one of the things that I'm looking for in a group is how to equalize and get rid of that power. And also I want to encourage a dynamic where we're in dialogue and conversation, not a monologue coming from the front. So I'll say to people, hi, my name's Helen. What do you want to know about me? Three questions. Anything you want to ask. And people kind of look, what, 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 what's going on? No, no, this is the point I was tuning out because this is the point where she does her spiel and I don't listen, but, you know, this is what goes on. And then people are like, whoa. And people say to me, that must be so, gosh, are you prepared for what they say? And I'm like, well, part of that is I'm showing them that things can emerge and I'm demonstrating and practicing for myself as I'm switching into the space of what will emerge and you let you see and experience what it's like for me to respond to it which comes to another element too that I'll just throw in there which is about showing up and being generous now people might go oh oh okay I get really interesting questions like so are you a cat or a dog person it's the surprising questions people very rarely ask me oh where have you worked before and where have you done this and can you prove they don't really want to know that stuff so when they ask you a cat or a dog person I don't go oh, I'm a cat person there will be a story and I will be generous and throw stuff in there as a way of demonstrating to them that be a generous contributor in the space. And I think when people are thinking about online spaces, like, oh, we don't make a human connection, I would actually argue it's because people don't show up and aren't a generous contributor. They tend to think, oh, I'm going to turn my video off. I'm going to turn the mute off or I will wait to be asked. And I think you wouldn't necessarily do that if you were in a in the flesh in a room, there'd be something that you might be contributing in, in passive ways. Somehow people have, I don't know whether it's because it's like sitting in front of a television screen and that's how you would do television, that you think that's how you're going to do an online meeting. So yeah, be open and, and generous in contributing. So when somebody gives you, and think of it as an offer or a question, it's like, oh, what can I make of this? How can I contribute something? And so yeah, then I get into interesting stories about you know, how my husband's a cat person and I'm a dog person and something growing up, which is giving people a flavor too of who I am. And yeah, interesting stuff about me as a human being. It raises a really interesting challenge because 
when we talk about being present when you're on a video meeting, Mm. I personally find it quite challenging when everyone's having the chat off to the side. But that's also about being generous and giving feedback and sharing. But for me, that's a bit of a paradox and attention because I'm so used to just focusing on the conversation and being present that I find it quite distracting. Yes. And for me to think about what I might put in the chat moves me away from being present in the conversation. Well, in a world where we are used to maybe doing our social media while we're watching television, there is a point where people have maybe developed an ability. There's a question about the effectiveness and the efficacy of such an ability, but in sort of like multi-channeling. And I think if you do that, it's great to have an awareness that you're context switching and context switching takes a drain on our brain. It actually has a, a calorific need and pulls on energy. So if you felt tired or exhausted from something afterwards, it may be because all of this context switching that was going on. So one of the things in terms of complexity is I might have a view of, oh, the right etiquette in the room for people being present is this. And so some of the things that I've had to learn to tangle with myself is that there will be people doing these things that I might not agree with. However, is there a way that I can let them be? Because if that's how it works for them, well, then let it be. And so many of these principles like be present often will be in conflict with something else like be generous and show up. And I think it's in the learning of these conversations and back to learning as a team that, okay, when we have these two things in conflict, what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to you? And what does it mean to us? And how does that come together? And it's not that there's a fixed response that needs to happen as if there's some universal truth out there of what this actually means. And now we're all going to calibrate to the single universal truth. The calibration is actually, it's us six people here in this moment. And what does it mean in this context? And can we let go of that principle in another context because it might not serve us? And it's a quality of abstract thinking and behaving that is part of the contribution that you can make to yourself in terms of thriving and complexity. Because I think people often go, just give me the five tips, Helen, or the seven tips. And like, well, I can at a maybe even abstract level. However, you will have to make meaning of those in different contexts. And that is going to take time and energy, mm. both from a relationship point of view, both from your own point of view, because it feels like, oh, just make it simple, Helen. And when people say to me, oh, you've just got to simplify things, Helen. And I've pushed back a couple of times now and said, actually, I can't make them simple. What I can potentially do is make them relatable. People go, oh, that's what I meant. Okay, well, me even being picky about that word choice is even disrupting people about what you just took as a given about what the notion of simplicity is. Because complexity isn't simple. <laughs> it is the nature of complexity. No. <laughs> and people tend to want these really black and white responses that they can slavishly follow. Yeah. What I'm hearing is we need to have a range of things in our toolkit that we sense what's going on in the context around us and we adapt and apply whichever tool makes most sense at that particular point in time. Yeah. yeah. And living with the greys, because people often have the sense like, is if somehow grey is a bad thing? And it's like, well, I don't know about you, but if you go to a paint colour chart, I've been painting walls in my house and there was a, like, I want a grey. And trying to explain to somebody the grey that I wanted and then you go to a paint chart and the, like the Bunnings and there's all these greys. It's like, seriously, it's none of those greys that I want. And then you start to realise how many <laughs> shades there are 
of the different human, you know, if I took it from an abstract metaphorical meaning, the shades of experience, the shades of perspective. And that is what makes something complex. And when people are trying to reduce it down to, we've got to get a couple of categories because now we can deal with black and white and maybe dark gray and light gray. And it's like the nature of complexity is there's going to be many shades of gray. And part of the learning to thrive in complexity is, can I live in the grays? Can I live in many shades of gray? And how I interpret the gray will be different to how somebody else interprets the gray. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Helen, I'm a great believer in the principle of putting your own oxygen mask on first. Unfortunately, I'm not so great at doing it in practice. How important do you think self-care is when you're navigating complexity? Very vital because you're the person navigating. And so your capacity to actually navigate, and like I mentioned before, at a biological level, if you're sleep deprived, oxygen deprived, dehydrated, then your ability to deal with things that are unexpected and coming your way will be greatly, greatly compromised. So literally, you know, putting the oxygen mask on, let alone the metaphorical aspect of it. One of the things that I will do when I'm working with myself and teams is even to be aware of that if I'm in a space where the complexity is higher, recognizing that, okay, so I've taken care of the basics of the oxygen and the water, my body will be depleting things in greater demands than maybe what's normal. So having some extra things in place, which is like vitamin B, a very, very practical thing. And so I would used to carry around a bottle of vitamin B and hand it out. Have you taken your vitamin B today? To the point that when I left the team, I all gifted them a bottle of vitamin B uh, tablets. <laughs> and so just something really practical, which keeps it in mind, like I'm moving into a space in which there may be greater demands on my body. So I need to do something at a biological level. But also too, this may be greater demands on my other energies and, and my social energies. So one of the considerations beyond your physical needs is actually your social needs. And you may be depleting your tolerance and your goodwill as you're dealing with something from a complexity point of view. So knowing that you have some good friends or people who get that you may be in this temporary state of intolerance and resilience. This isn't that you had a great personality change, or this isn't that you were a problem and they're going to jump in and fix you. It is the nature of being in a state of confusion. And one of the things that I often find when you may be feeling like you're thriving in complexity, but the people around you aren't necessarily that same way, and they can push back and respond to you in ways that gives you an added element of something to deal with. Because first of all, they've not got directly the complex situation. But second of all, your behavior is having an impact on them. So knowing that you may need to kind of constrain yourself to a certain circle of friends or be really mindful who you're sharing your challenges with, because there are well-meaning, lovely people who want to care for you and in their care may inflict help on you <laughs> and give you the gift of their problem-solving talent from a very... uh complicated, orderly world point of view, which is not helpful nor appropriate when you're in a state of complexity. So I've learned to think about that self-care of who are my go-to people who get me, who get that kind of stuff, and I can kind of signal to them, right, it's one of those moments, so right now I need you to shut off your advice-giving, help-giving persona and just be with me here and let me work this through and process this 
with nothing else going on? Can you be that kind of person? And there will be people that you kind of need to think beforehand, who are these people and how can they provide that? But also to let them know, by the way, you're on call for this role. Are you up for it? What I've come to appreciate is the level of complexity that I can tolerate can be very uncomfortable to others. And it's not a kindness to expect them to be where I'm at or appreciating or understanding that. So being really mindful then about who I might expand since making an exploration with. I've previously had a really interesting conversation with Karen Fuster, who developed the indicator of ambiguity tool. Mm -hmm. And we both reflected on the fact that because we personally each have a fairly high tolerance of ambiguity. Yes. What we often don't realize is the impact of that on the people around us. Yeah. And so because we feel okay about it, we think they're okay. And the importance of really stopping and bringing them along with you Mm. and checking on them as well. Indeed, indeed. And that it's an invitation to be in that space. And it's not a not being in complexity is bad and being complexity is good it's about what is appropriate at which time and we are constantly moving in between something that we're dealing with might be quite complex and then something we're dealing with is very basic and simple and so even understanding that as an individual or as a group we are constantly moving in and out of aspects that are complex the challenge becomes that in things that are complex we're possibly having very different perspectives on it and if we've just quickly switched from something that seemed very simple and basic and obvious to something complex, we bring with it this notion of, oh, it will continue to be simple and basic and obvious. It's like, no, 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 no. We've moved into something now from a complexity point of view. So there's value when I'm holding a space or holding a team conversation to sometimes just call out, oh, I think we're now in something that's a bit complex. Let's kind of put a different hat on or a different mindset in how we deal with this. And so I think that's a really nice segue to the fact that you co-organized the premier Kinevan meetup in Australia. And I know we're both fans of the Kinevan framework. Would you mind sharing with our listeners what Kinevan is and why it can help people navigate human complexity? Sure. So Kinevan is a framework for decision-making. It's not a model. It's a framework. It was created by a guy named Dave Snowden about 21 years ago, and many other people have influenced the shape and form of it. As a decision-making framework, it's also a sense-making framework. The word Kinevan, and if you're hearing me talking it, you're probably thinking it's something beginning with K. It's a Welsh word. It begins with C, so it's spelled C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And this Welsh word means our place of multiple habitats. And it's the idea that we can actually be in something that's got multiple aspects going on at the very same time. And how that's helpful for us in thinking about what decisions we might make is to appreciate that the context of something can have very different flavors. And as humans, we tend to think, oh, it's one thing and not that it's multiple things simultaneously. The framework itself talks about five domains. There is the domain of clear, complicated, complex, chaotic, and the apparatic disorder. Some of this language you might struggle with, that's okay. And in fact, Dave Snowden, when he talks about it, is unapologetic for adding in words that might feel not familiar to you, because that is actually a great way for you to start to appreciate something that might be outside your current experience and your current learning. Of those five areas... You could think of them broadly as there's a state of disorder 
a state of order and something else. And as humans, we tend to think, oh, disorder, bad. Got to get out of disorder and get to some sense of order. Well, order is two of the domains in Kinevin. That's the clear and the complicated. And so we have a kind of premium view of, well, that's where the good things happen. That's where our tools are fit. That's where our mindset and our behaviors all fit. But there's this other space where you can move from disorder to unorder. And now unorder gives us a bit more to play with and expand with. And that sits the domains of complex and chaotic. So rather than thinking we're in this binary of disorder, bad, got to get out of disorder into order, it may be that the situation we're in where we're in disorder and confusion is actually to move to unorder. And for each of these five domains, Dave has put in the framework some simple kind of strategies about how you would tackle something, tangle with actually, not tackle, tangle with something in each of those domains which gives you a little bit of a sense of, well, what would I do? And I'm not going to enable all of them right now because I'm sure to get them wrong, even (laughs) though I know the framework. (laughs) So there's on the website an article that I've put called a primer to Kinevin. So if this is starting to interest people, I've listed on there some interesting articles and videos that could maybe expand a little bit more about it. But one other point that I will say about how the framework is very, very helpful It's supported by a number of methods created by the Kinevin Co., Dave Snowden's company. And many of these methods are ways to elicit out what perspectives are we holding as individuals and as a group around whatever decision we're trying to make or matter that we're trying to sense make. And it helps us understand the greys. And and many of the methods are to expose more of the greys and more of the greys. And With exposing all of the greys, we can then maybe tackle all those things that possibly fall into the complex space. Well, we can follow the strategies and advice for how you deal with those things. Those things that fall in the complicated space, well, we do something different with those and we behave a little bit differently with them. All of that has at the baseline a sense of we can take some of the emotional heat out of conflicting perspectives and explore them together and understand it's probably all at once And for people who have been trained in certain kind of methodologies or processes will often think, but that's bad, this is right. And it's like, well, it may be right in a particular context and maybe I need to expand my repertoire of other tools and methods and processes to help me deal with any of the spaces that are in the Kinevin framework. So if we were to sort of drill that down to a few key concepts, Helen, would it be fair to say that it's about staying curious about what you're observing around you, making sense of that, being ready to respond, but then also be ready to keep adapting those responses. Yes, and appreciating that context is going to affect choices. So it's like, what context am I in? Yes. So rather than jumping straight into, because sometimes curiosity is like, oh, I think it's this and jumping straight into This, I've already decided what patterns based on what's worked in the past of what I'm going to do moving forward. And in some ways, your curiosity Mm. is kind of being contained and not being expansive. Now, it could be in something that's in the clear and complicated domains. Actually, no curiosity is needed. You don't need to be exploring Mm. that stuff that you can just draw from the past because those patterns and predictability are great and valid. When you're in the complex domain, levels of curiosity, more curiosity is needed. And maybe the curiosity that says, I'm prepared to let go of the past and what I know, because the situation I'm in is going to be quite novel and probably never happen again. 
And the word that Dave used when he talks about how you're behaving in the complex domain is not adaptive, it's exaptive. Mm. And to exact something is to say, there may be tools and things that I have in my toolkit that we use, I know work in a particular way. What if I use it here? Not expecting it to work in the same way, but I use it and I exact it, which means I radically repurpose it for something that it wasn't intended to be used. And then that may actually produce something useful. I don't enter it with an expectation of it's proven, it's tried. I absolutely know it's going to work. So with that curiosity is a kind of openness to what could be possible and what might emerge rather than holding like something particular has to emerge. It's like, can I be holding that curiosity enough to try things and experiment with things? And he often talks about in their complex domain, you're looking for things that are safe to try because nobody knows what they don't know. So part of that curiosity also comes with not that, oh, Suzanne must know something. I just need to be curious and get it out of Suzanne. It's like, None of us know. Mm. So can I be curious for the emergence of knowledge that none of us know that I might not recognize? And so then how do I kind of even play for something that feels very vague and ambiguous and maybe just try something with it rather than thinking, oh, I'll wait till I get all my ducks in a row. Mm. So noticing whether this is something that you feel you already know and then asking yourself the question, does it matter that I feel I already know this? Using the Kinevin framework to actually work out what type of a situation is this? Yes. And then using that to guide the approach that you adopt. Well, in fact, a situation is never going to be all in complex or all in complicated. It's about then saying mm. of different aspects of the situation, I, Helen, are seeing these things probably fall into complicated, these things fall into complex. So the things that fall into complicated the Kinevin framework gives me some guidance about, well, how I might deal with those things and complicated. It's different advice for how I might deal with things and complex. Now, that's just Helen's subjective view. Now we bring in Suzanne and the other five members of the team and the situation we're talking about. Some of the things that I might have put in the complicated domain, they went, oh, no, no, that's in the clear domain, which could be effective. Well, that's because of their experience and their knowledge. And it's not about saying, oh, no, no, it should be in clear versus complicated. It's The complexity at a sort of a whole of team level comes from the fact that we all share these different perspectives. And sometimes as a team, we're unable to be productive and move forward because like, no, that's not the right thing to do. No, this is the right thing to do. So how do you take some of the heat out of those conversations and say, what perspective are you holding? Which context do you think this is in? And why do you think it's in this? It's got something sitting in this context because it may be that we're Something that we're looking at, we've got at such a high level, we need to tease out and look for the granularity in it because it may be a truth that there's something in it that isn't complicated and in complex at the same time. So can we tease out what those things are so we can treat them differently? Take the bit that is in the complicated, treat that as a complicated thing, treat that as a complex thing. Helen, given all the many different things. Lots of abstractions in these conversations. Yes, (laughs) there are. Given all the many things that people need to be mindful of what's happening around them and that there is no clear recipe for every single situation, and it actually requires that openness to possibility, listening to other people. Absolutely. What does thriving in complexity mean to you personally? 
I'm going to say something that's going to sound a bit abstract, but it's metaphorical. And one of the things when you're dealing with stuff in complex is the power of metaphors. So for me, thriving in complexity means that I make music, not noise. And let me expand on that by what I mean by making music is that the things that I choose to do will have a sense of flow and maybe a sense of coherence. And you might be thinking, yes, Helen, you're still talking in abstraction. So let me give you another metaphor. There is a difference between making music in an orchestra versus a jazz band. So in an orchestra, there is a piece of music that's probably been printed out on sheets and we've all learned to play it and we each know in the orchestra what instrument we have and where we sit and there's a conductor who's guiding us. So you're making music, but you're making music with many kind of constraints and guiding holding that together. Contrast that with making music in a jazz band who's jamming. We get whatever instruments that came together. We might agree to start in the key of G. We have no idea how long this music we're going to play is. We have no idea what kind of tempo it's going to be or which instruments are going to play their role. However, we are there with a belief that we are not just making sound, that we will listen to each other. We will be curious. We will accept the offers. We will generously contribute. We will make our partners in the musical thing look good such that something music musical will have musical ability will appear now at the end of it or while you're maybe on the outside listening to it you're kind of thinking oh yeah these people prepared this beforehand this is like you know it's like no that just emerged in the moment you need and it's not to say that people who are jazz musicians have no musical ability they come with their musical ability and then there's an element where they let go and see what emerges, they take whatever emerges and use something with it. They don't sit back and think, oh, now I'll I'll wait till the music's written down before I play. So for me, thriving in complexity is that notion of that I jump into the music making thing with an intention that music will be made, but maybe not music that I can anticipate in the future or uh, what it might be. However, there's a belief that because we are together, something musical will be made and we may recognize something melodic about it rather than it just being a bunch of noise. I love that musical metaphor and I'm sort of quietly chuckling because a number of years ago, I headed up the Queensland Health Reform Transition Office where we broke up Queensland Health, which was the health system in our state, Mm -hmm. into 17 separate legal entities. So we had nine different streams of work. 300 high-level deliverables and many people that we were dependent on to do certain things. And our team used to actually refer to me as the conductor, right? as the conductor of the orchestra and thinking about all the different sections that need to be working and that recognizing that there were times that some people you could just leave them alone and the conductor didn't need to pay too much attention to them, just keep your keep them in your peripheral vision. Yes. And then there were others that you really need to work with in a lot of detail to get them in tune, mm. connecting in with everything else. And then there were other times that you just made me think, wow, there were times when you were, you don't have a conductor in jazz music, but if there was, we just threw the sheet music up in the air yeah, yeah, and just went with the flow. So it's a wonderful metaphor. Indeed. And there are some people, I look around the world sometimes, and, and this is going to sound a bit judgmental, so I'll own that. And I look at people and I think, yeah, you wouldn't be part of my jazz band. <laughs> and that's simply because it's not to say that they aren't musical. There's an appreciation of it would freak them out if I said, let's just start playing music. There is no script. 
or we'll just start in the key of G and see where this goes. Because some people think, oh, that means that you have no expertise, you have no experience, or you don't know what you're about. And they kind of attribute this kind of figuring it out as you go as almost like a you couldn't be bothered, you couldn't be prepared, you aren't trained, you don't have expertise. And that may be true if we were dealing with a complicated context, but in complexity, that's an absolute appropriate approach to take and incredibly valid. And so finding people who can understand, yeah, I have all my musical training, I know my discipline, and I'm prepared to let that go and just go with the flow of figuring stuff out. And it's not going to harm my identity. I kind of know how to maybe position this in terms of my reputation with others who might have been looking like, yes, but you should know. And this often happens with leaders or people leading a group. It's like, there's an expectation where you should know. You should be able to give us a clear vision, name the future and the steps. And if you don't do that, that's a failure of leadership. And when you've got things going on in complex situations, nobody knows. Nobody can say what the destination is. And so this notion that you're figuring stuff out as you go along gets somehow devalued as if that's a lack of commitment, a lack of dedication, a lack of preparedness. It's like, no, no, that is the reality of what's needed for complexity. And Helen, this is a real tension that I see for leaders in the public service. Yeah. As a former senior public servant myself, I'm really conscious of the constructs that exist in that sort of political environment Mm. and the challenges of trying to lead in very complex situations where you've got government representatives trying to respond to the electorate who want simple answers. Yes. And they want definitive answers. And it's a real challenge and it's a dance, I think, that public servants in particular need because they're often the ones that are dealing with the really big, complex societal issues where the community is expecting government to say, here's the magic solution. So it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, where some reframing can happen to think when people say, I want a simple answer. If you reframe that and said people wanted a relatable answer, Mm. and if rather than people want definitive detail, people want meaning. Yes. And so if you start to shift it and understand it and maybe even abstraction level what people are after, people will often show up with kind of like, I'm looking for concrete details. Actually, what's behind that is I want to have a sense of control over my own current reality and I'm looking for information that will give me meaning of what my current reality is and what my future reality might be. So where people are looking like they're seeking definitive details, if there was maybe a story or a metaphor that helped them make meaning of what's going on and be able to put it in context, that actually would probably satisfy them. So it's one of those things when people say to me, oh, so-and-so needs such and such. And I go, Rather than this five whys, which is often gets thrown out of, you know, understanding what a person's really looking for, I do something called the reverse Q&A technique. So if X is what you're looking for, so if X was the answer, what was the question? And so it enables to kind of get a sense of that thing you're looking for. If simple was the answer, what was the question? Oh, well, how to make sense of this, lots of this information that I can't process, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Oh, Okay, well, then that we might tackle with something else rather than this notion of simplicity. And so I I invite people to not take it on face value when people say things like we need details, we need simplicity. It's understanding what is the reason or why are they looking for those? And maybe there's something else that you can provide that feels a bit left of field that will actually take care of their need for a sense of control or a sense of meaning making. 
And it's why we've seen the increasing importance of storytelling. Absolutely. In helping people to relate to things and understand the context that sits around. Yes. What would otherwise be a very meaningless fact on a piece of paper. Yeah. And people do that in their everyday life with their families. And that's something to remind people that the things that we're asking of them, they will handle high levels of complexity in their family relationships. You know, even just something like organizing a Christmas dinner has lots of elements of complexity in it. And so sometimes I, when I'm having a conversation about these things, I try to connect it to something that people actually can relate to and say, see, you can do this. I'm not actually asking something of you you've never done before, or you've never tackled before. However, you probably didn't realize that's what was going on. So over here in an organizational situation, maybe it's a bit like the organizing the family Christmas dinner. So maybe then there's an element for maybe some more grace that you can accommodate the people that you're working with of not needing to know everything or have everything figured out or that we'll try some experiments. Or we won't even get it all perfect. We're never going to get it perfect in all in working order. Mm. Some very important things to remember there. (laughs) particularly if you have perfectionist tendencies. Yeah, that's a big one in terms of if you're dealing with stuff of complexity. How do you let go? (laughs) Cue the music from Frozen. Mm. And (laughs) I call myself a recovering perfectionist and it's one of the things I need to do all the time when I'm working with complexity is just realizing that you can have a plan, but you've got to be prepared to throw it out the window. You've got to stay open to observing what's happening around you. And really making sense of what you need, what is the best way to respond to what is presenting in front of you at that time. Yeah. And it's okay if it's not perfect. One of the things I advise people if they're wanting to get a sense of like, so how do I kind of practice being complexity is applied improv. So improv, like improv theater, it's a great way to practice and doing some activities. You might think, oh, that's just about being playful. Yeah, but if you don't know what it feels like in your body to do or be in this space, then when the real complexity stuff goes on, you might struggle. And so some of the principles of applied improv are things like make your partner look good, accept all offers, relax your clever, a couple of things that I've already mentioned. And what's valuable about them is in applied improv or when you're in improv scene, there is no planning. So if you're kind of like, oh, no, no, have a plan and prepared to throw it out. What if you entered a situation with no plan? It's like, okay, so how do you enter and do something in a situation where there is no plan? There couldn't be a plan. There was no time to make a plan. And so most people are like, oh, no, no, I've got all the time in the world. Okay, so use applied improv as a way to go with no plan. Or the plan might be, if you've ever seen something like the Whose Line Is It Anyway TV show, it's like, okay, you are now going to do a conversation between two people at a bus stop about, and let's ask the audience, what's the topic? Growing tomatoes. Okay, two people. You know, you're you've got the context. You're at this bus stop mm. talking about growing tomatoes. That's as much as a plan as you've got, and that's known in complexity as maybe having some enabling constraints. You've got something to work with. Couldn't really call it a plan. Two people pretending to talk at a bus stop about growing tomatoes. And can you go into that? Can you lean into that and make something of it without expecting? Well, it needs to have guarantees that it would work. It needs to have really clear steps in what you need to do. Now, that's not to say every moment in every situation in a team or at work should be like that. However, when there are moments of complexity, could you act that way around the situation of being complex? Helen, I'm just quietly laughing again, because although I have these challenges with perfectionism... Oh, I'm glad to provide such entertainment. (laughs) No, no, because all through high school, 
and this makes more sense to me now, I did speech and drama. Right. And I did improv all the time. Every single week I practiced improv. Right. And so that might actually help to explain why I've been able to get through some of these very complex challenges in my career with my perfectionist tendencies because I've also had that practice of improv. Yeah. And it's not to judge and say that perfection's not bad. Anyway, something for me to ponder. <laughs> yeah, those perfectionist tendencies could be really valuable if we were using the Kinevin framework as a point of reference. In the clear and the complicated, some perfection, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, laying out the steps, brilliant, absolutely what's needed in clear and complicated. You develop that and you revel in it. However, in complex, something else is required. Mm. And so then it's about as individuals, how do you expand your repertoire about what's in your toolkit that you could use and the energy and the mindset that you, you choose to adopt them. So rather than this kind of binary like, oh, I shouldn't be a perfectionist. No, be a perfectionist in the context that are deserving and valid of being a perfectionist. However, be something else and orientate something differently when it's in a different part of the domain of the framework. Mm -hmm. Some advice we might be able to give to, or some playful advice we might be able to give to other perfectionists out there is, if this is something that is challenging you, maybe seek out a local theatre group and go and join in and have a bit of fun and flex that playful side of yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Helen, looking back, if you could give advice to your 25-year-old self, what would it be? It's probably useful to cite where I was in my reality at 25 years of age. Mm -hmm. So I had already been in the workforce for eight years as a working person. I was newly married. I was in my first year of university. I was living in a city in New Zealand of 350,000, having grown up in a the constraints of a very religious environment that I had left just two years prior at some great personal cost. So the advice to that 25-year-old self would be, first of all, well done you. Congratulations to you for getting to where you've got and the things that you have pulled together. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are things in that experience that may have been costly, that may have been uncomfortable, that may have given you scars. They are also things that have shaped the values that you've got. And while you're finding those values as this newly emerging person, like for me, the religious environment I grew in didn't think highly of women in higher, doing higher education. So even the fact that I was going to university had sort of a tension involved in it. So good on you for living with the tension. Understand that it's not going to be a case of once you get out of university, all the tension will disappear, that you've recourse corrected the life in the direction you want. This is just the opening overture. Two more tension, so embrace the tension that you're feeling right now. By the way, keep doing some of those things that I see were from a self-care point of view, but make sure that you do more of that because that is going to hold you in good stead. And if I was kind of on a sense of like, was the trajectory of where I maybe am now, could it have been sped up in some way? Maybe if there was more self-care. However, the past is the past. It is what it is. So whenever you're doing something, rather than feeling like you've got to get the right step figured out, just be kind and easy to yourself. Try some things. They may be useful. Take what you can from them and keep moving 
forward in without having a sense of like, I've got to have a goal, I've got to have a specific direction. It's okay to lay down that talk that other people want to tell you, that you should have a five-year plan, that you need to have a direction. You keep moving, taking one step at a time, being open to what's going on, be curious, and just think what you could do with what you've got and see where it goes. That's what I'd say to my 25-year-old self. I love that idea of keep moving and staying open and just forward direction. Really lovely. Thanks. Helen, if people remember only one thing about what we've spoken about today, what must they be sure to remember? So I'm going to probably surprise and say, I'm not going to offer something. And this is partly because one of the things I've come to learn in hosting a space is not to have a preset idea of what I would like people to come away with. And to trust that people will hear or take what they are ready or willing to hear. Mm -hmm. It's my hope that some of the things in this that might have sort of tickled their fancy or, you know, caused a little bit of tension has the potential to be something that's useful or valuable. And therefore, my hope is that that might allow something different to be possible. And it goes back to just staying open. Yeah. Not interpreting for other people. Yes. Letting them interpret for themselves. Yes. Which possibly comes from the, like I had mentioned, I grew up in a highly religious environment. There was a lot that I grew up with where people were interpreting the Bible, scripture, religious concepts in a very strong way to me saying, this is what it is and you should believe it. And so I recognize that some of my values and the way that I operate now is to be mindful not to do the interpreting for other people, to put some information on the table, to provide a situation in which new information or knowledge might emerge and invite people to make and take of that what they will. Mm. And Helen, if our listeners would like to connect with you online, how can they go about doing that? They can follow me on LinkedIn. And I choose the word follow there quite intentionally. If they would like to connect with me on LinkedIn, I would ask that they please put a message in there introducing themselves. I take a very principled and maybe provocative stance that if I get a connection request on LinkedIn from somebody I don't know, I'll automatically ignore and reject it. And this is coming from the point of view that I'm about people and making a human connection. So make a human connection with me, not a technological one. And just put a little message in there, maybe that you heard this podcast And I'd love to hear maybe what you thought was valuable about it. It gives us a way to kind of start to build a rapport. And Helen, I know I found so much of value in our conversation today, and I really hope that other people have as well. There was certainly a lot of ground that we covered. And so this might be one of those episodes that people might like to listen to a few times. Indeed. Because I'm sure they'll hear something new each time. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom with all of our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to share and to create new knowledge ourselves in this moment. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.